You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, today we get the wonderful privilege of looking uh, once again into the Word of God. I remember when I was a kid, um, a pastor I heard teaching um, used the analogy that the Bible is like uh, God's blueprint for life. It tells us how we are meant to function in this lifetime. It shows us what's right and wrong, what makes us happy and sad, what will satisfy us and what will not. It shows us all the ways that God intended life to work. And uh, all of that is certainly true. But as I've grown in my understanding of the Bible, I've actually come to realize that the Bible isn't so much about reading the blueprint as it is about meeting the one who created the blueprint. Reading the Bible is an encounter with the living God, which is the only thing that really has the power to change our lives. You you know, if we had the blueprint for life, we could study it all we want. Without divine power and provision, uh, we would be powerless to change to conform our lives to that blueprint. But with God, that becomes possible. So once we understand the true purpose of the scriptures, we stop reading the scriptures from a me-centered perspective. We stop reading with the primary question in our minds of, well, how how does the word of God bear on my life and my circumstances right now? And we start asking the alternative question of, what does this teach me about God and about who he is and about how I can grow to love him more than I do now. Now, there are two main ways that the Bible does this. First, it uses words to describe God's character, words like holy, merciful, faithful, just, and loving. When we meditate on the meaning of those words and how the Bible uses those words to describe God and to reveal who he is to us, we get to know God more. Another way is that it shows us what God has done his activity in history to redeem us, an activity that culminated in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. So who he is in the words that are used to describe him and what he has done in history. But there is a third way that the Bible helps us to know and love God better, and it's the one that we're going to look at today. Today we're not only going to look at what God does, but how God does it. Because the how matters just as much as the what. If I announce to my wife that we're going on a vacation tomorrow and tell her that she has 10 minutes to pack, she wouldn't be very happy. But if I were to give her a few months advance notice so that she has time to process it and plan it and get excited about it, then she'd be thrilled. The what is the same in both scenarios, it's a vacation, but the how makes a world of difference. And that's what Genesis 17 is about. By now, in the story of the life of Abraham, Abraham already knows what God is going to do. He knows God's going to make him into a great nation. He knows that God's going to multiply his offspring and give him land and bless him in order to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But, but the question remains, how would he do that? That has remained a mystery to Abraham so far, but that's about to change in our chapter today. God is about to show Abraham how he intends to fulfill his promises. And in so doing, he's going to show Abraham and us more about who he is, that we might love him with a greater passion and obey him with a greater commitment. So let's read our text today, Genesis chapter 
17. This is the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The title of this message is God's Promises Revealed. God's promises revealed. My aim today is to show you that God reveals his plans slowly 
in order to reveal himself fully. God reveals his plan slowly in order to reveal himself fully. We're gonna have three points today that all center on this covenant that God makes with Abram in chapter 17. First, the heart of the covenant. Second, the sign of the covenant. And third, the revelation of the covenant. The heart, the sign, and the revelation. First, the heart of the covenant. Our text today begins by telling us that these events in chapter 17 occur when Abram was 99 years old. Now, usually the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old people are at every significant moment in their lives, and that's true of Abraham as well, but at certain key parts of the narrative about his life, um, Genesis tells us how old he is, including here. He's 99 years old. The last time we're told about how old Abraham is was uh, the last verse in chapter 16. When Ishmael was born, that is Abraham's son, not through Sarai or Sarah, his first wife, but through Hagar, Sarai's maidservant, who became Abraham's second wife. Uh, When Ishmael was born, Abram was 86 years old. So 13 years have passed between the events of chapter 16 and the events that we're going to look at in chapter 17. The other time that we're told about Abraham's age was actually at, uh, back in chapter 12 when the narrative about Abraham begins. God calls him out of Haran to go into the land of Canaan. And when he does that, uh, Genesis 12 verse 4 says that, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so what we see is from the time that God first called Abram out of Haran into the land of Canaan and gave him the promise that he would multiply and become a great nation to now, to these events in chapter 17, 24 years had passed. 24 years since God had first promised to bless Abram and to make him into a great nation. 24 years of Sarai being barren and not having any children, not even a single one. And now she is 90 years old and too old to have children. And so it would have been quite natural for Abram to have come to terms with Ishmael, his only child, his son through Hagar, to come to terms with him as his heir, as the one who would be the vehicle of God's blessings into the world. By now he's 13 years old, and as God foretold of him in chapter 16, he was a wild donkey of a young man, not just because he was a teenager, but because God created him that way. This boy was tough. He could take care of himself. He was strong and fierce, and he had an indomitable will, which means that he was likely a suitable heir for a powerful and wealthy man like Abram. But then these expected, unexpected events happen in Genesis chapter 17. The Lord appears to Abram for the first time in years and gives him a mighty pronouncement that causes Abram to fall on his face. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now notice how God begins. He introduces himself. Even though Abraham has known God now for 24 years, God says, I am God Almighty. One of the distinct features of the book of Genesis is the various names that are used to describe God. This is kind of like the first way that God reveals himself through the scriptures, by the words that are used to describe him. 
mighty, just, loving, merciful. He has names. In chapter 14, King Melchizedek calls God El Elyon in Hebrew, which means God most high. In this pantheon of, of gods, lower gods and higher gods and more powerful gods in the land of Canaan, um, God of scripture, God of Abraham was being declared God most high. He is the one who possesses unique authority and power. Then in chapter 16, which you saw two weeks ago, Hagar calls God El Roy, which means God of seeing, a name that communicates God's intimate care for individual people, even the lowliest of people. He sees you in your unique struggles and circumstances. He does not overlook you. He does not just see you in a mass of people. He sees you as an individual. He is a God of seeing. Now here in chapter 17, God names himself. And the name he chooses is El Shaddai, which is translated as God Almighty. Now this is a name that communicates not only God's sovereignty and power and might, but God's willingness to wield all of that on behalf of his people. It captures the idea that God's divine omnipotence exists not just for his purposes, but for his people. And that means that there's nothing that God can't do for those he loves. He is almighty. And that's why early Jewish scholars also translated El Shaddai as the God who is sufficient. The God who is sufficient. Every need that we have, every burden that we bear, we can look to God, knowing that he is sufficient to meet every single one of our needs. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is sufficient. The Lord then issues Abram a command in verse one. He says, walk before me and be blameless. God is calling Abram to two things here, to moral purity and to relational humility. He is to be blameless when it comes to obeying God and he is to be humble in walking before God. I've come to meditate on this phrase, walk before me, quite a bit this past week, and I found this comment by an older scholar to be helpful and insightful. He says, God directs Abraham to live life before him, a life in which every step is taken looking to God, and every day of which is accompanied by him. Like a little child, walking in complete dependence and trust on his father, God calls Abram to walk before him, to look up at his heavenly father and to say, is this the way I go? Am I doing this right, daddy? That is what God is calling him to do. Now look at verse two. God calls Abram to be blameless and walk before him and he says, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And this time, if we're following the text, the, the story of Abraham, we should be scratching our heads a little bit because uh, God already made a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, right? That's what he did in that mysterious ceremony involving the animals that are cut in half and the fire that symbolized God's presence passing between them. Um, and God says, um, uh, he, uh, the, uh, verse 18 of chapter 15 says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And by passing through those animal sacrifices by himself and not requiring Abraham to do that, God was taking on the full responsibility of the covenant himself and not requiring Abraham to do that. God's saying, if this covenant should be broken, I will take the consequences upon myself. 
and you shall be free. This is a covenant of grace, not works, because it didn't depend on Abram's faithfulness. It depended on God's. So that helps us to understand verse two. We have to read it in context. God's not creating a new covenant. He's reaffirming and expanding upon the covenant that's already been made, a covenant not of works, but of grace. It's true that the covenant calls Abram to walk before God and to be blameless, but if Abram fails to uphold his end of the covenant, God will still uphold his end of the covenant. And that's the story of the rest of the Old Testament. You know, God doesn't say, well, if you fail, if you, if you are blameworthy, or if you don't look to me, then our covenant relationship is done. We're finished. God doesn't do that. All throughout the history of Israel, Israel sins. They walk before any other God except El Shaddai. They commit all sorts of sins and transgressions against God, and yet God never abandons them. He never forsakes them. He never uh, abandons or breaks his covenant. God is faithful to uphold his covenant even when his people are not. The Lord then tells Abram how he's going to bless him in verses three to eight. If you read these verses carefully and compare them with the previous times when God makes promises to Abram, you'll notice several differences. The first is in verse four, God promises to make Abram a multitude of nations. Remember what God said in in chapter 12. He said, I will make you a great nation. Now it's expanded upon. the, The true reality of this blessing is that you'll become a multitude of nations. That's the first time God has ever revealed that to Abram. This is such a significant expansion of God's promise to Abram that it gives rise to this name change in verse five. Abram's name means exalted father, like in the singular, father of a great nation. But the Lord changes it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. By renaming him, God demonstrates two things. He demonstrates his love and he demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his love in knowing Abram, not just as this kind of nameless nameless, uh, instrument that God is using to to do what he wants, but as someone that he knows intimately. But it's also an expression of his authority. He's saying, I have the right, the authority to redefine you, to give you a different identity. And I express that by giving you a new name. Abram's life doesn't belong to himself. It belongs to God. Then in verse six, God promises to make Abram exceedingly fruitful to the point that kings shall come from him. That's, that's a first as well. Those promises are nowhere uh, before chapter 17. Then in verse seven, the Lord says that he will establish his covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is also a first. Abraham knew that God's covenant was with him. But he didn't know that his, God's covenant would also be with his offspring equally. Here's another further expansion of God's generous covenantal love that he's pouring out upon Abraham and now upon his offspring as well. These are all significant expansions of God's promises, all guaranteed by the reality that God is El Shaddai. He is sufficient to deliver on his promises. He's all that we need. But as great as those promises are, the most important one is captured in this little phrase at the end of verse seven, where God tells Abram that his covenant was to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I promise to be God to you 
and to your offspring after you. We see this kind of language, this concept again in verse eight. And God says with respect to Abraham's offspring that I will be their God. This is the first time that God reveals that he wasn't just going to give Abraham and his offspring things. He's gonna give them himself. He would be theirs. He would be their God. Their God to call their own. Their their God to call upon whenever they were in need. And they could trust that he would be there for them because he was to be God to them and to their offspring after them both now and forevermore. This, my friends, is the heart of the covenant. This is the ultimate blessing, not the land, not the wealth, not the offspring, not the kings that would eventually come from Abraham's bloodlines. God was the ultimate blessing. And God is the ultimate blessing to us. Not the blessings. The blessings are good because they come with the God who pours them out on us so richly and freely that we might know him and find our satisfaction in him. If you are a Christian today, God's promise that I will be their God belongs to you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, believing that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead for your justification, God's promise to you is that he will be your God, not just a God, not just the God, but your God. He is your God because if you walk by faith in Christ, you are in these verses You are the one spoken of in these promises made to Abraham. You are the multitude of nations. You are the offspring. You are the ones who are the subject of the promise that he will be your God. As the Apostle Paul so simply put it in Galatians chapter three, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you belong to Christ? then these promises belong to you. And God will be your God, both this time now and forevermore. And if you are not a Christian, I want you to know that this invitation is extended to you. No one is beyond the grace and the mercy of this God who would be the God of sinners, of broken people, of lost people who don't have life altogether. You don't have to be good enough As we've seen already in uh, this account of Abraham's life, Abram certainly wasn't good enough. He was a doubter. He was a selfish coward. He was a sinner. This covenant that God invited him into and that he now invites you into is a covenant of grace, of unmerited favor, not of works, not of righteousness. And so come to God through faith in Christ, trusting that he died for your sins and God will be your God. He will reveal himself to you as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is sufficient. Now over time, God's simple but profound promise, I will be your God, would become one half of the Bible's most beloved way of referring to God's covenant. If you are familiar with this, you'll know the other half. The other half would be, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. It is this equally wonderful promise that is captured in our second point, the sign of the covenant. So in verses nine to 14, God commands Abraham to keep his covenant by instituting the practice of circumcision, which was the removal of the foreskin on the male genitals. Now, 
Children, if you don't know what that means, I invite you to ask your parents at home. Uh, Parents, I apologize in advance, but I'm just trying to preach an expository sermon. So circumcision is the subject matter of point number two. History tells us that this was quite a common practice at the time. It's not distinct to the nation of Israel. Um, And it's one that continues today in certain cultures and traditions around the world, not just from the Judeo-Christian worldview. I'm gonna highlight a few elements of this practice from our text before explaining why it's important for us to understand it. The first is that verse 11 calls circumcision the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant between God and his people. It wasn't the covenant itself. It's the sign. The covenant between God and Abraham exists independently of circumcision. And this meant that getting circumcised doesn't bring someone into the covenant. Getting circumcised was merely the physical representation of the spiritual reality that the person was already part of the covenant. That's why, you know, we're not going to get there in this series, but later in Genesis chapter 34, Jacob's sons would deceive um, the Hivites, uh, all the men of this one town, uh, into circumcising themselves, and then they go and murder them all while they are in physical pain. Uh, When they were circumcised, they didn't become part of God's people. Okay, so circumcision is just a sign of the covenant, not the covenant itself. Second, verse 12 says that infants who were eight days old were to be circumcised. This happened in infancy shortly after birth. The practice at the time among the surrounding nations when it came to circumcision was for young men to be circumcised in their early teens as a rite of passage into adulthood. But that wasn't the case for God's people. God's people were to be circumcised shortly after being born, which demonstrated that they didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to be good enough. They were given a place in God's covenant simply by virtue of being Abraham's descendants. Third, verses 12 and 13, say that every male throughout all generations, whether born in Abraham's household or bought with money as servants, shall be circumcised. This shows that God's covenant with Abraham was never meant to be exclusively biological. It was always open to those who would join the people of God from outside of Abraham's bloodline. So remember, when God first calls Abraham in chapter 12, he doesn't say, I'm gonna bless you. You know, you're my people. I only care about you. He says, no, I will bless you to be a blessing to all the families of the nation. And that is represented here in this welcoming of those who are not part of Abraham's biological lines into the covenant represented through circumcision. Fourth, verse 14 says that any male who was not circumcised would be cut off from his people because he has broken God's covenant. Now it's not clear among the scholars whether this meant excommunication, you know, cut off from God's people means that the people would cast that person out or whether God would sentence that person to death, you know, by giving them some kind of illness or sickness. Um, But what's clear is that uh, to disobey this command was to attract God's judgment. This wasn't optional for Abraham and his descendants. If they were to continue to receive the blessings of the covenant, they would have to be circumcised. So, I mean, why does any of this matter? What does it mean for us today? Because after all, if you know your New Testament, you'll know that Christians, those who are part of God's people, part of the new covenant, 
made in Christ's blood no longer need to be circumcised. That was a big debate in the early church captured in the scriptures and the decision of the early church leaders was that new believers don't need to be circumcised. It became a gospel issue. If you required new believers to be circumcised, it was a contradiction of the gospel. It was a return to justification by works and not by faith. So why why does this matter? Well, let me just suggest two things. First, these verses remind us that God isn't only interested in having a relationship with individual people. Okay, that's true. We saw that in chapter 16 with Hagar. God sees you in your unique struggles and weaknesses. He's there to help you and care for you uniquely as an individual. That is wonderfully, beautifully true. But the sign of circumcision tells us that there's a corporate element to God's relationship with us as well. He sees us as individuals and as a collection of individuals. Because God isn't only interested in bringing individual people to himself. He is interested in creating a people, a people, plural, that will be called by his name. A people who share a common devotion to him in the way that they live and in the way that they worship. Circumcision was the old covenant way of marking this group of people as distinctly belonging to God. As Derek Kidner puts it, it was God's brand, his signature, his way of telling his people and the world that these are his people. They belong to him, uniquely among all the families of the earth. Now we, as Christians in the new covenant, may not practice circumcision, uh, but we have a sign as well, a collective sign that denotes us as the people of God. It's the Lord's Supper. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves of the wonderful promise that God is our God and we are his people. It's not the covenant itself. The Lord's Supper doesn't save anyone. It doesn't forgive anyone of their sins, but it is a physical reminder of the spiritual reality that Christ has done all to save us. Second reason. The second reason why circumcision is important is that it provides a picture of what needs to happen in our hearts if we are to be faithful to God. It shows us that the most, that it shows us that, that something uh, in the deepest, most intimate part of our being needs to be cut off so that we will live as faithful people before God. And that's why Moses, actually this is an Old Testament concept, not just a New Testament concept. Moses himself in Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of of what? Of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. Cut it off. Change who you are in your most innermost, deepest, most intimate part of your being so that you will no longer be stubborn and so that you will follow God. The difference, as you probably would have surmised by now, between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision is that we can do the first, but we can't do the second. No one can provide soul surgery on their hearts. No one can change their own hearts. And that's why Moses later gives Israel this promise again in Deuteronomy, but later in chapter 30. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The covenant sign of circumcision reminds us that something dramatic needs to happen in each of our lives for us to be in a right relationship with God. Something messy, even painful, 
know, we have the picture of the, the blood and the gore and the discomfort and the ugliness and kind of the queasiness. That's what has to happen in our hearts. And God's the only one who can do it. God needs to cut out the selfishness and the sin from our hearts so that we might love him with purity, with a love that comes from all our heart and soul. And he does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. As Romans chapter two says, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So that's in brief why circumcision is important and why it continues to be relevant to us today. That leads us to the climax of God's speech to Abraham and to our final point, the revelation of the covenant. It's in these verses, verses 15 to 21, that the Lord finally decides to reveal not just the what of his promises, but the how. The what is the multitude of nations, the land of Canaan, the kings that will issue from his descendants, but the how has been unclear to Abraham. At one point, Abraham thought it might be his nephew Lot, right? his kinsman, his brother's son, um, who he was charged with taking care of. Um, but then Lot goes into the fertile Jordan Valley and settles and starts his own family, so Lot's gone out of the picture. So then later, Abraham uh, expresses his fear to the Lord of, oh, my, the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus, a household servant, not part of Abraham's tribe, just a servant, but then God assures him that he would be his own son. And then in chapter 16, of course, Ishmael is born. He has his own son. He's like, well, it's going to be Ishmael. Is Ishmael going to be the how to the what? The means by which God finally fulfills his promises. And 13 years had passed since Ishmael was born, and Abraham was quite comfortable with that idea. But here in verses 15 and 16, God reveals that the how wouldn't be the son of Hagar. It would be the son of Sarai, Abraham's first wife, the barren wife, the one who for 24 years, actually probably beyond that, because they were probably having, trying to have kids even before God encountered Abraham in chapter 12, barren all her life, now 90 years old, unable to have children, she's the one who would be the, the, the how to the what, God renames her Sarah in verse 15, Sarai to Sarah, not to change her identity like he did with Abraham because both Sarai and Sarah actually mean princess, but to demonstrate that the same personal love and authority that he had for Abraham rested on Sarah as well. Because of, of that, all these special blessings that were poured out on Abraham would be poured out on her as well. She's gonna become a multitude of nations, kings are gonna come from her, um, etc. But as Abraham... Try to think about how you would react in in his shoes. As you consider this new revelation, you have a son. You have Ishmael, a fine strapping young boy, a wild donkey of a young man. And you have, you know, you've you've had a relationship with him. You know him, you love him. And then you see your first wife, Sarah. She's been completely unable to have kids, 90 years old. It seems hopeless. You know, time after time of disappointment, failure. How would you respond? How does Abraham respond? Verse 17 says that he fell on his face and laughed. He said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This, this, these, of course, are rhetorical questions. These aren't questions of inquiry. 
They are questions of doubt. He's laughing at God's word. That's how ridiculous it all seemed to him. It was so far beyond the realm of possibility that he couldn't take it seriously. Now, to his credit, verse 17 says that he said these things to himself. He didn't laugh openly at God. Indeed, he was still prostrate on his face before God Almighty in a posture of reverence and fear. Maybe, maybe that's why God didn't rebuke him. God shows himself to be exceedingly patient with Abraham in these verses as he doubts, as he laughs at God's word. God's word seemed impossible to Abraham. But what seemed very possible was that God would take Ishmael, who seemed to be the natural leader, and use him to multiply and become great. So Abraham offers this prayer in verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now to this word, God gives a stern no. He says no. Hagar's son wouldn't be the one who walks before God, receiving the daily light of his favor and covenantal blessings. It would be Sarah's son. And he shall be called Isaac. Now, do you know what Isaac means? It means he laughs. He laughs. God commemorates Abram's doubting laughter forever. By naming his son, he laughs. Why? Well, to ever show him and the generations that come after him that God fulfills his promises even when we don't believe in them, even when we laugh at them, even when they seem too ridiculous to believe. God named him Isaac so that when we are tempted to doubt and laugh at God's promises, promises to forgive us of our sins, promises to lift us up out of our darkness, promises to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls and pour out his love into our hearts, when we laugh at those promises, we might look to Isaac and remember Abraham's laughter and see that the laughter became flesh and blood in the person of Isaac and believe that God really does make the impossible possible. This is the true beauty, my friends, of understanding the how of God's promises. Listen. He doesn't just do what he promises in straightforward, clear-cut ways that we anticipate and expect, in ways that make sense to us. He does what he promises in the midst of seemingly impossible situations because that's how he demonstrates who he is. The how reveals the who of God's omnipotent power and blessing that he exercises on behalf of his people. The how is what reveals El Shaddai, the almighty God, the God who is sufficient for every single one of our needs. And nowhere is this clearer than on the cross. As Jesus hung there on the cross, the disciples fled, the Romans mocked, and the Jews, what? They laughed at the one who was supposed to be their savior. But in the midst of all this, God was working. He was working his greatest and mightiest act in all of creation's history, the act of forgiving us of our sins and making us his very own people, that he might be our God and we might be his people. That's how God works, because that's who God is. And he has been finding ways to reveal who he is through how he works from the beginning of time until today. Our text ends with this wonderful display of God's favor on Abraham as he promises to bless Ishmael 
You know, he's not gonna become a multitude of nations and no kings aren't gonna come from him, but he will become a great nation and they, that nation will be led by 12 princes. They're gonna multiply greatly, but God's covenant wouldn't be with Ishmael, it would be on Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear at this time next year. <clears throat> There's a lot we could say about election. God has the sovereign authority to decide who receives the covenant and who doesn't. That certainly is a truth here, but we just don't have the time to linger here. But we do need to recognize that God has that sovereign choice and Abraham submitted to it. Verses 22 to 27 show that. Abraham goes from laughing at God's word to obeying immediately. Verse 23 says that very day, that very day as God had said to him, he circumcises all the men of his household, his son, himself, the foreigners, everyone, to remind everyone around them that El Shaddai was their God and they were his people. So in conclusion, let me leave you with this. The next time you look at your life and you wonder, is this all that God has for me? Is this what my life is supposed to look like in God's plans? He promised to bless me. He promised to be there for me. He promised to bless me and to care for me and to pour out his love upon me, but I don't see it, I don't feel it, I don't know any of that. That seems so far away from my experience that I wonder if it'll ever come. Well, remember that God doesn't work on our timelines. He works on his own. Not because he wants to see us squirm and wriggle, but so that we might know him more fully and love him more purely. Remember that God doesn't always make the fullness of his plans known to us. He might assure you of a promise during a time of prayer ministry like we had earlier today. And you are encouraged by that. And your faith is strengthened by that. And yet the next day, you go back to the same struggles and you wonder, what did that promise mean to me? I don't see any fruit. I don't see any results. That was an empty word. It was a meaningless, purposelessness word. That didn't do anything for me. Remember that God doesn't reveal all of his plans and the fullness of his promises when we always want him to. I remember when I was a younger man, I had a friend in pastoral ministry who believed that God had promised him certain things for his church, that his church would flourish, that his church would grow, that his church would deepen in its commitment and devotion to Christ. Those are all good things. And he, on the strength of those promises and the conviction of those promises, he renewed himself to to greater devotion to his ministry and to his people. But as he did that, he met resistance. He met rebellion. He met slowness of heart and weak faith. And he burned out. And he left the ministry. And he said to me, those promises, they all proved to be fake. If only he knew this lesson in Genesis chapter 17. God promised Abraham offspring when he was 75 years old. 
but he didn't reveal that this promised child would be Sarah's son until he was 99. 24 years of waiting for the full revelation of God's promises. 24 years of doubting, questioning, and speculating until God finally decided to reveal the fullness of his plans. But what is 24 years in God's master plan of redemption? It is nothing but a drop in the ocean of time. God would wait hundreds of years before fulfilling his promise to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. That's what he said in chapter 15. God would wait thousands of years before fulfilling his promise that the promise that the the son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. God works in his own time and in his own way so that we might know him as El Shaddai. God Almighty, the one who works all things for the good of his people. He is sufficient. I end with these verses from 2 Peter We do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in your word despite how impossible it may seem. And help us, Father, to know you more fully and love you as you, in your infinite wisdom, work all things in your own timing for your glory and for our good. Give us persevering faith that trusts in you always, even in the darkest of times, that we might love you and worship you with pure hearts as we walk before you, walking every step, looking to you. We entrust ourselves now to you in Jesus' name, amen.